65 different countries around the world. 1985, we had our first international conference. It was held in Zimbabwe, and the general director of Scripture Union in that country, David Cunningham, with his wife Janet, decided that they wanted to leave Scripture Union in order to start an entirely new kind of work. (coughs) At that time, what was happening was that the full extent of the AIDS epidemic in Africa was beginning to be evident. And it was quite clear that something almost like the Black Death in Europe, which in the years from about 1380 to 1400, killed off approximately a third of the population of Britain and many other European countries. Something like that was obviously going to happen in many parts of Africa and other parts of the world. (coughs) Question was, what, if anything, could we in Scripture Union do about it? David and Janet felt very strongly God calling them to develop a program which later became called either Aid for AIDS or Life Skills. The shape that that has taken uh, in South Africa, for example, is that in any one year, the SU staff and volunteers speak to something like 45,000 children over a six-week period, coming into secondary schools and giving them advice, really on biblical principles on how to live, including their sexual lives. That program has now spread to something like 22 different countries in Africa. The view of the World Health Organization is that it is by far the most effective program of anti-AIDS education going on. The two alternatives either are that people learn to live according to God's laws, or they depend upon contraception, to avoid infection. And when we've heard about the poverty in so many countries, the latter is not a feasible option. And people are really being faced with the star choice. Either we hear what God has to say and we obey him, or there is an absolutely terrible price. And that terrible price is being paid by children all over Africa. If you've been watching any of the comic relief programs, you'll see places there where children have been left bereft of their extended family because their adults have been killed off by AIDS. I would ask you, if you've got a concern for the children of the world, this epidemic is the most horrific, destructive force that I think we have seen in our time. And the more we experience it, the more we can see that it is nothing but the word of God saying chastity before marriage, faithfulness in marriage, is the only thing that is going to be effective in checking the spread of this disease. I want to just pray for a minute before we look at the scriptures for those who are involved in this work, and it's a a widely increasing one, but I believe an absolutely strategic one for the children and young people of the world. So let's just bow our heads and pray for a minute. (coughs) Loving Father, we live in a world of horrific suffering of many kinds. But we do want to pray, Lord, for 
people to hear the word that we actually read this morning in Deuteronomy, where Moses is crying out to the Israelites and saying, God loves you. God wants you to experience the richness of the earth. But the way to experience that blessing is to hear his word and to obey it. And Lord, our hearts go out to families, not only in Africa, but in almost every country of the world, where there's a spiritual blindness that prevents people hearing and seeing the loving word of God that says, I long for your health, but your health comes through hearing and obeying my word. And so, Lord, we want to pray for all who are involved in trying to communicate biblical principles. Lord, remember Moses saying in Deuteronomy, these words are your life. And we do believe in every sense of the word that your word is life in all senses of that word. So we pray for this work in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to turn to just a couple of very, very brief verses today as a basis for something I've entitled Investing in Mission. And these verses come in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to read from verse 19 to verse 21 only. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Page 971 in my Bible and possibly the Pew Bibles as well. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and inflation and collapsing stock exchanges and VAT and tax and house prices destroy your savings and where thieves and the Chancellor of the Exchequer break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where there is no VAT, no inflation, no collapsing stock exchange, no disastrous decline in pensions to destroy your savings. And where there are no thieves or taxmen to break in and steal. This is the crucial verse. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm a financial advisor. I have no accreditation from the Financial Services Agency, but I do advise people on their investments. And any advice I give is based upon these verses which we have just been reading. Money is a very funny business and really one of the things that made me think about this passage uh, and the whole of our Western preoccupation with money came about through my colleague who directs Scripture Union in Russia. He was a space scientist who became a Christian in a remarkable way, which I won't tell you, and gave it up to be a full, what he calls a full-time Christian. We were able to pay him a salary of about $250 a month on which he supports a wife and uh, four children 
and also finances a lot of the work in Moscow. 250 US dollars for 175 pounds, something like that. Some years ago, the, there was a disastrous devaluation of the ruble. And we had a committee meeting following that when my colleague Andre said, uh, we are in, in a serious position in Scripture Union. <laughs> so, well, we always have been. There's nothing new about that. We live from crisis to crisis financially. That's the way it is. Now, he said, no, no, no. You'd misunderstand me. Because of the devaluation, I have ceased to be a poor person and I am rich. And all the people around me are far poorer than I am. And I am so aware that this extra money which I now have is in danger of corrupting me. And therefore I'm asking for a cut in salary. I tell you, that really made me go away and think very seriously. And I began to look at what Jesus says about money in the New Testament. And he says some absolutely devastating things about it. <clears throat> For example, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's very uncomfortable, isn't it? You see, it seems to me that money is at the same time three different things. First of all, it's a means of exchange. It means where I can swap my workers. I used to be a teacher for groceries and we can have exchange. It's an efficient way of exchanging for goods and services. And secondly, of course, it's a gigantic confidence trick. It works while everybody believes in it. When I was in Zimbabwe in 1985, there were eight Zimbabwean dollars to the pound. I was back there in a government contract in 1992 and I think there were 80, eight zero dollars to the pound. I was back in 1999, I think it was, and the rate was about 800 to the pound. Money works while people believe in it. The stock exchange works while people believe in it. And all it takes is a couple of disastrous business collapses of Enron and WorldCom, and panic runs through world stock exchanges, and people's pensions are halved in value because the confidence is gone. It is a gigantic confidence trick. Now, fortunately for most of us, it, it works by and large. Yeah, we get ups and downs, but, you know, by and large it works okay. But the third thing that Jesus is pointing out is that money is also, it is a spiritual force. It is a spiritual power. It corrupts people. And I think Jesus' warning to his disciples was to say, Watch money like a hawk because very subtly it will corrupt you. And it took a gap between me and my Russian colleague to really shock me and say, watch this thing like a hawk because it will corrupt you. And, you know, the whole history of religion is littered with examples of this kind of corruption. Let me give you an example. Jesus enters the temple. And he drives out people who are buying and selling doves and lambs and so on. And 
there was a huge corruption going on there in a rate of exchange. You had to offer uh, a temple currency and so wherever people change money, there's a commission going on. And the commissions were extortionate. So much money accumulated in the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' time, in fact, before Jesus' time, that in 54 BC, Crassus, one of the Roman consuls who was engaged in a, in, in a war, he raided the temple of Jerusalem and he took away the equivalent of about 25 million pounds. And it's, Josephus says it made no perceptible difference to the amount of money stored away there. When the temple was burnt in AD 70, it said the streets of Jerusalem ran with molten gold and silver. There was so much there. And one of Jesus' accusations to the Pharisees is that they loved money and it had grossly corrupted them. I think one of the most chilling things in the Gospels is the account of Judas when he realized that he has betrayed his master and he comes with his 30 pieces of silver in torment of soul and he says, I have betrayed innocent blood and the leaders of his nation say, what is that to us? Over to you. That's your problem. We couldn't care less. And far from getting any comfort or redress for his remorse, Judas has no resort but to throw down the 30 pieces of silver and go and hang himself. Jesus says, look, this is a spiritual power. And he says, really, it's a bit like a weighing machine. If you love God, you will tend more and more to be indifferent to money. But on the other hand, if you really love money, gradually you will find your love for God is diminishing. Now, just think for a wee minute of some of the wealthiest people that we hear about in the media. Are they renowned for their love for God? Now, I do know a few very rich people who are scrupulously careful and wonderfully dedicated Christians, but there are very few of them. There's a very devastating comment came out of the last Amsterdam Billy Graham conference for evangelists. And it says this, evangelists are particularly prone to sins related to sex or money or both. And that was really spoken out of some of the terrible scandals among television evangelists in the States and elsewhere. Money is a spiritual force that is in great danger of corrupting us. On the other hand, the Gospel is full of examples of what happens when people get a different, a kingdom of God perception of what money is. And I think most particularly of that woman who took her alabaster jar of ointment. Now there, as far as we can get and make a rough guess, that was worth something like a year's salary of a working man. She wasn't a rich woman, but presumably this was the accumulated wealth of her lifetime. This is her pension fund. And in one extraordinary gesture, she brings it and she, she pours the whole lot out in one utterly unself-conscious gesture. And the whole lot goes. 
and scandal among those who are alive to the poor, apparently. They say, oh, but you know, no, this money, let's say it's 15,000 pounds. Here's salary, average salary. They say, oh, but you know, just think of the good that could have been done with this. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This woman has done something and this story will be told as long as the gospel is preached. A lot of people are preoccupied with their place in history. Every prime minister wants to think about how he's going to be thought of in the history books. Authors are obsessed with the fact that they hope people are going to go on reading their books or their plays later on. You will remember, of course, the way Shakespeare says in his sonnet 81, and it goes like this, when all the breathers of this world are dead, you, he says to the person he loves, you still shall live. Such virtue has my pen, where breath most breathes, even in the mouths of men. In other words, my verse has the power to make you, in effect, immortal. The only trouble is we don't know who the person was that he wrote that about. But we do know about this woman. And Jesus says, people who invest in me are making a timeless, incorruptible, unselfconscious claim to fame. The question is, is he right or is he wrong? And so Jesus says, look, there are inflation-proof investments. You can't take it with you, but in effect, he says, you can transfer it in advance. But he says, it's really about love. Because he says, it, do, what, what, what do you love? If, if you love money, he says, it will gradually replace any real love you have for God. But he says, if you put it the other way around and you start saying, oh, look, I'm going to invest in the work of the kingdom of God, then Jesus says that investment is safe. And he says, it's really a question of what you love. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The thing that you really love is the thing that you will invest money in. And not just money, but obviously he goes on and he speaks about investment of our time, our talents, of our very selves. This is where really God calls all of us to live a life of faith. Jesus Lewis said this, he said, if we consider the, un- the unblushing promises of rewards in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us instead. And Jesus says, how are we going to invest the things that he has given us? Money is, is just symbolic, but it, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary powerful symbol of what we really think and what we really love. And I speak from a lifetime of battling with the insidious effects that money has. And believe me, it's, it's an issue, that even in my advanced age, it really is. It, it, it's, you think you've got it whacked and then 
subtly it creeps in and, and, and it, it distorts the way you think. It distorts the way Christians carry out their work. The lack of it or too much of it. It, it, it begins to dominate. I know when I was, went down to Scripture Union in England, as usual, there were financial problems. And the great danger was that we would become so preoccupied with the bank manager and all the other things that we would lose sight of what we're really about. I could elaborate, but I won't. But I, I, I just want to say that, you know, this is not something that you deal with once. It's something that goes on and on and on. Now then, we're talking about investing in mission. I looked at your excellent publication uh, about uh, all your missionaries. I worked my way through them. At first I thought, oh, this is incredible. About 31 missionaries supported from this church. And then I counted again and it came to be 61 because I was really just counting husbands and wives as one, which in a sense they are, but in other sense they're not. And then I thought, no, no, it isn't. It's 91 because there are children involved. And then I thought, no, 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 actually that's a piece of nonsense. There are 800 people or however many there are in this church involved investing in mission. Because you see, a mission really only works when everyone is involved. Yes, God calls individuals to mission work. But that has a knock-on effect on their families who have to pay a price. Uh, my parents were missionaries. Um, my father went abroad when my brother was uh, 14. My dad didn't see him for five years. And when he came back, he walked right past my brother on the dockside because... He left when my brother was, I suppose, about five feet four, and he came back when he was six feet five, and he literally did not know him. And yes, we children paid a price. We were involved in mission. And uh, that involves an awful lot of battle sometimes. But the Sanding Church is intimately involved in this whole business of mission because there is a huge responsibility in committing a church to support in prayer, in finance, in care, in 101 different ways, there's a huge commitment. And mission societies, if they're doing their job properly, when someone comes forward for mission, should really come to the church and say, do you realize what you are taking on? You cannot just say, yes, shove off to foreign parts and God bless you and all those deal with you. Unless that church is responsibly weighing up, is this person a suitable one to go? And is committed to supporting them. They are doing something grotesquely irresponsible. And I could tell you horrific stories of missionary disasters because churches were not fully involved in the support of their own people. There's a huge responsibility and commitment too. If they're going with a mission of some kind, they have a responsibility to the whole personnel management of those missionaries. And then the most vital thing of all is how is this person or the, how are these people going to fit into the culture where they're going? Unless those things are tied down in a very professional way, unless there are clear job descriptions, those going, the job they're going to, unless the matching is done properly, then so often that missionary enterprise can be frustrated. So, when we're talking about investing mission, 
we really are talking about a holistic thing. It affects the person who's going, it affects their family, it affects the church that is behind them, it affects the person, people who are committed to praying for them. And unless those things are in place and have been thought out efficiently and with commitment, then the thing is not going to be a success. So, I really want to just say to people, I, I cannot sufficiently commend this church for the number of missionaries you have sent out. But I do want to say that the number of missionaries that you send out is the totality of the people, the membership of this church. We've been reminded that there is a gigantic mission field on our doorstep. I'm sorry if I banged on about that this morning. My wife said, you know, you did sort of nag a bit, and I did. And I, maybe I didn't sufficiently commend all the good children and youth work going on in this church, and I want to say that publicly now. But I'm looking at the wider scene. I'm looking at the mess this country is in, and I don't think we've sufficiently appreciated the mess it's getting into. And really what I'm saying is, let's see our church as one whole that is involved in this business of investing our time and our thoughts in money. Now, in, in, in mission, sorry. See the way money <laughs> makes its way into our thoughts. I want to just close with three bits of sound investment advice. And the first one is be scrupulously honest in your dealings with money. I say scrupulously honest. There have been almost as many tragedies in the church over money as there have been over sex. People who have really destroyed their ministry in the past by failing to take that scrupulous example. And I say, even honestly, with the tax man. I tend to get little bits and pieces of extra income, and I have to say that it's, it is a real struggle to be scrupulously honest, because I look at the, the waste of my, my money and your money that goes into Gordon Brown's hands, and I see the way they squander it in all sorts of ways, and I say, it can't be right. But God says, be scrupulously honest. Zacchaeus is the archetypal character of somebody who realized that his commitment to God meant he had to be scrupulously honest. I think that is the first piece of investment advice. God will honor you if you are scrupulously honest, even with the tax man. Secondly, be careful where you invest your money. Which bank are you actually going to put it into? Oil Bank of Scotland? You can put it into a pension fund? Well, up to a point you have to, of course, you have to be, have some care for these things. But remember what Jesus said about investing your acts of righteousness. He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen of them. If you do that, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And he says, really, are you doing it to impress people with your generosity? Maybe that's not so much a problem with us as it was in Jesus' day, but maybe it is. 
I'm invited to contribute money to various academic institutions that I've attended, university and so on. And if you do, they'll put your name in the next annual bulletin, they say, you know, people who gave gifts from naught to 500 pounds and 500 to 1,000 and over 1,000 and then, you know, big roll of drums and here's somebody who's given 100,000 and so on. There's still a lot of kudos to be gained by getting your name in lights for your generosity. Either that or just letting it slip casually that, you know, I'm pretty generous to comic relief when the time comes and so on. He says, well, fine, you know, if, if that's what you want, if what you really want is public recognition, you can have it. But it's at the cost of God's reckoning and his keeping account. And the final principle really is make sure you're investing from your own personal account. And Jesus was so devastating about this. He says, if any man would be my disciples, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he said, really, what I want is, I don't want your money, he said, but I do want your heart. Remember this morning, God said through Moses to the Israelites, he said, look, love the Lord your God. It's about love. What do you really, really love? As a pop song recently said. And God says, you know, come on, be honest. Be honest with yourself. You don't need to tell anyone else. What, what, what is the real hunger in your heart? What is you really aiming for? And he said, if you're going to invest in me, that is a timeless, incorruptible investment. He said, if you've got something lesser to invest in, well, it's okay for a while, but it is a diminishing resource. And finally, just to link on to what C.S. Lewis said, he said, everyone, remember Jesus said, uh, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Very hard to believe that sometimes, we live in a world that talks about money and is obsessed by it. And it corrupts people. And Jesus says, I want you to invest in something that is timeless and indestructible. I have to say, here I am an old man, and old men tend to get a bit maudlin and reminiscent and so on. There are four of us in our family. My mother's great ambition was to be in heaven where there'd be no more partings. Because our family broke up time and time again. Very close family, but um, at different times we were all left at home. My parents were abroad and then we scattered over the face of the earth as many missionaries' families do. But every one of us would say um, those words of Jesus are absolutely true that what we have been blessed with is out of all proportion to any sense of loss that we had along the way. Jesus means what he says. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Yes, of course we have, there's an element of prudence, we have to put things by for a rainy day and so on, of course there is. 
But watch that like a hawk. Watch mine like a hawk because it weasels its way into your heart. It redirects your affections and it robs you ultimately of the incorruptible inheritance that God has in mind for you. May it be so for his name's sake. We're going to close with a song.